Ross King is the author of several books about Renaissance artists, including Brunelleschi's Dome and Leonardo and the Last Supper. This is Ross King. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right, I'm here with Ross King. Uh, look, I, I wanted to start recording because we're just getting into something good, which is you've written all these books about all these you know Renaissance geniuses. How is it that all these different painters and sculptors wound up congregating in the same city of Florence. What was so special about Florence? I think one of the key statistics that there is for Florence um, during the Renaissance is it had the highest level of literacy in Europe. And that simply cannot be a coincidence that uh, you have a city that has uh, what's probably about 70% male literacy um, and also female literacy was relatively high uh, because of the high population of nuns, because virtually all nuns were, uh, were taught to read and write. Um, and so what you have is a city with scribes, scholars, uh, librarians, priests, monks, bookworms, uh, people like this uh, who um, sort of spread knowledge um, and spread literacy, spread ideas. And those ideas then begin to um, infect and enthuse and electrify uh, the people around them, um, including ultimately the artists. Uh, so we have, uh, I would say literacy is one of the big things. The second big thing, I suppose, is the, the sort of workshop practice that they had, where we get a kind of apostolic succession of geniuses coming out of these workshops, because someone like you have a, a great artisan, a great goldsmith like Andrea del Verrocchio working in the middle part of the 1400s and ultimately in the 1460s into his shop comes Leonardo da Vinci. And so Leonardo has a great teacher. He has someone uh, named Verrocchio who has been well trained in his field by his master and then he trains up Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and I, they, I guess maybe the last thing I would say is maybe has to do with population and physical space and the urban environment because Florence had a very small imprint. I mean, even today you can walk, you know, provided that the uh, tourists aren't crowding the pavements and the traffic, the roads, uh, you can walk from the north end of Florence, uh, say the um, Porta San Gallo to the, uh, the Porta Romana on the south in maybe 45 minutes or so. Um, and so, uh, it and likewise walking from east to west across the city. Um, and so confined within this circle of walls was a population that at its maximum extent in the 1400s was probably um, 45,000. They probably never reached 50,000. Um, and so everyone knew everyone else uh, and everyone saw what everyone else was doing. Everyone else, uh, everyone commented on what other people were doing. And so we have this sort of critical mass or the, I mean, things like architecture became a spectator sport where when Brunelleschi was working on his buildings uh, such as the Innocenti, the Foundling Hospital um, or the new sacristy for the Church of San Lorenzo, uh, these uh, buildings in which he's creating a new architectural vocabulary uh, which really looks back to the architecture of the ancient Romans, the sort of things that no one has seen take shape in Italy for more than a thousand years. When Brunelleschi is working on these things, 
it said that his workmen had difficulty accessing the site because so many people were clustered around watching what was going on, watching the building rise. So there was great interest in and enthusiasm for art, architecture, literature, all of these things. And I think in Florence, you just got a higher level of debate about these things than you got in various other cities around Europe. Yeah, it, it's what you said starting off is, I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone can perfectly answer that question. Like I, I was talking to a biographer, uh, Basquiat, recently. And at that time in New York, you had this sort of hive of activity. Who knows why these things happen? But you mentioned uh, Leonardo. And I wanted to ask you uh, a number of questions about him. But first off, you wrote this book, uh, Leonardo and the Last Supper. Among all the things that you could have written about him, why did you want to zero in on this painting in particular? Why did it strike you as being important and a rich subject? I think it's so interesting because of the fact that it represents the moment or the, its completion, and I guess the process, the, uh, the two or three year long process when he was working on it, is the point at which he becomes Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, because One of the things that really uh, struck me about Leonardo is that uh, from the time he was very young, everyone recognized his genius. Everyone acknowledged that he was the smartest person they'd ever met. Um, but people were always disappointed by the fact that he seemed to be falling short of his capabilities and he wasn't fulfilling what everyone recognized was his tremendous promise. Um, and it's uh, an interesting fact that if Leonardo had died in 1494 at the age of 42, so in what we would say is approaching middle age or uh, middle age, uh, but in his time was maybe the span of years he could have expected, the average life expectancy for a man uh, born in Leonardo's time was 40 years. So in many ways he reached 42 uh, without having achieved what he himself called his work of fame. Um, he was very conscious of the fact that he wanted to create something uh, something like what Brunelleschi had left behind. I mean, he when he came to Florence, he would have been staring at Brunelleschi's dome, and he knew that that was Brunelleschi's hostage to immortality, or he would have seen the sculptures of Donatello uh, or Lorenzo Ghiberti. So he grew up with these works of greatness around him, and he wanted to achieve something like that for himself. Um, and so just to go back to your first question, to sort of add a little footnote to it, this is one of the other things that happens in Florence that we get this uh, idea of people competing not only against their contemporaries, but competing against people, the previous generations, trying to outdo what has been done by someone who died 25 years ago with a massive reputation. And so Leonardo wanted to achieve something like this, but sadly for him, uh, through a ver various difficult circumstances and uh, maybe his own somewhat eccentric way of working, uh, he hadn't, by the time he reached his 40s, achieved everything that he wanted to. Um, and uh, it re wasn't until the Last Supper that he had a work of art that he could point to that he knew uh, would make his reputation, uh, as it certainly did, uh, make his reputation across Europe. And so I just found it interesting that uh, it's sort of the work of what we might call a, a late bloomer 
in some ways that Leonardo um, finally at the age of, well, he was in his mid forties by the time he finished it. And so at that point in 45 or 46, he finally did achieve his work of fame. And so it was a kind of interesting way of looking back at his career um, and also positioning the Last Supper within the context of his life. Because I think with any masterpiece like the Last Supper, it's easy to extract it from the biography of the artist and see it as uh, something spectacular uh, that transcends time and transcends the personal circumstances of the person who created it. Uh, but in Leonardo's case, um, it was the, as I described in my book, the outcome of a series of somewhat odd circumstances. And Leonardo was not, um, you know, we take it for granted now, it's a, a masterpiece. But um, I think, you know, if you had uh, laid wagers in 1494, you wouldn't necessarily bet on Leonardo finishing the Last Supper, much less making it into such a masterpiece for the simple reason um, that, as I described, uh, he had not worked in fresco. He did not know the fresco technique um, and he'd never done a painting anything close to the size of the Last Supper, which is 30 feet across by 15 feet high. Um, and so all of this uh, really does then indicate that uh, there was something special about that commission. Um, and it was something that made that turned him into Leonardo da Vinci. Well, when you mentioned his working methods, I mean, the guy was he today, they might say he was, you know, ADHD or something like that. But he he would he had a ton of interest. He would I mean, there are like notes of his. It's like find out what a hummingbird's tongue looks like, like very yes, sharp yes. curiosity. But he would start paintings and then just abandon them why? Like, why would he do that? Well, I, you know, I think he would deny that he abandoned them. Uh, I don't think he ever deliberately abandoned them. I think in most cases, he wanted to go back to them um, or believe that he was going to go back to them at some point when the circumstances were right. I would also, I think, challenge uh, the ADHD idea. I mean, I, I think, you know, none of us 500 years hence are, um, right. are, are going to be able to make that sort of diagnosis about him. No, sure. I'm just uh, throwing I'm, it out I'm, casually, of course. But. Exactly. Well, and, you know, and that is uh, um, something I quite often get asked about him. And my answer always is that he had incredibly strong powers of concentration. You just have to look right about his or, you know, read what he wrote about uh, the uh, the land forms of the planet or the human body. He had tremendous powers of concentration. Where he went off the rails, if we could call it that, or what, uh, um, how he got distracted is for him, everything was connected to everything else. Um, and so if you asked him to find out a fact about something, he would keep digging and then go off in all sorts of side tunnels um, and explore them. Um, and so uh, one of my favorite quotes that, uh, about him that describes his way of working and the way he was misunderstood even then comes from the time that he's working on the Last Supper in 1495. And a friend of his in Milan, where he's working, writes to a mutual friend of theirs in Florence. And this friend in Milan writes and says, Leonardo is not going to finish the work for the Duke, i.e. for uh, uh, the uh, Duke of Milan, who uh, Ludovico Sforza, who has commissioned it and is paying him. 
He's not going to finish the work, the friend says, because of the fact that whenever he should be attending to his painting, he's studying geometry, architecture, and anatomy. And uh, what his and, and so his friends saw these things as distractions and diversions from painting, whereas in fact, Leonardo's painting, including in The Last Supper, and maybe especially in The Last Supper, um, are informed by geometry, architecture, and anatomy. So everything was connected. And I think he, what he wanted to do was find a kind of theory of everything. And so his explorations led him down paths uh, along which no one else had been treading. Um, and he followed them as far as he could. And they would then just, he would branch off onto another path and continue down that. And of course, his original objective uh, was getting lost in the midst of all of this. I mean, he um, was uh, relentlessly curious and always trying to take things apart and figure out how they worked and one thing would lead to another. And so just circling back to your question about the paintings, uh, he it's interesting that he, um, you know, there isn't really one that uh, he deliberately got rid of apart from a portrait he was supposed to be doing for Isabella d'Este. Uh, for some reason, he just did not want to do it. Um, I, I don't know whether he just did not have a personal rapport with her, despite the fact that she was one of the greatest art patrons in Italy, in fact, in all of Europe at that time. Uh, but he was com commissioned uh, to do a portrait of her. He did a sketch, but nothing more. And even her ambassadors couldn't, when they came to Florence, couldn't convince him to do it. Virtually every other work, though, I think he he wanted to finish uh, or believed that at some point in the future um, uh, he would somehow complete. But just a last point about that, um, and, and maybe a larger point about him is one of the reasons he didn't finish everything is perhaps in, that in his heart of hearts, he did not want to work as a painter. That was it, it's maybe slightly ironic and maybe frustrating for him that we today, 500 years later, regard him first and foremost as a painter because of, uh, of The Last Supper and the Mona Lisa, albeit recognizing his other talents. Uh, but uh, he himself would have wanted to work uh, rather like Filippo Brunelleschi on large architectural projects um, or in civil engineering or as uh, a battlefield architect, a military architect, something like that. He really did, he wanted to work on grand projects of things that uh, would, you know, that you could see from miles away on a hilltop or as you entered a city. He didn't want to work on altarpieces for obscure bands of monks who had their little churches outside the walls of Florence or Milan where, or wherever. Um, he really wanted to uh, reinvent himself as a um, an architect and engineer rather than as a mere painter. It's yeah, it's very ironic that he's known as a painter now. And when you talk about the fact that he wouldn't probably be remembered, uh, certainly his reputation wouldn't be as strong if he hadn't completed the Last Supper. Um, and you mentioned the word masterpiece. That word gets thrown around a lot. And certainly if there is such a thing as being a masterpiece, something like The Last Supper deserves it. But can, can you make a case for why we should care about The Last Supper? I mean, after all, a lot of the paint, as you mentioned, has chipped away. It's harder to see. 
uh, it's not the most photorealistic painting ever. W w what is it about that painting that is so uh, uh, important, profound, moving, etc.? I think in some ways it doesn't look photorealistic to us uh, some 520 years after it was uh, fit, completed. Uh, but certainly at the time, that was one of the enormous appeals of it. No one, no one had seen anything as uh, realistically painted on such a large scale, because remember those figures are life-size um, and you could do incredibly lifelike work on an altarpiece on a wooden panel using egg tempera paint. And certainly artists uh, such as the, the uh, Van Eyck's um, in the Low Countries, uh, Antonello de Messina using oil paint in Italy, uh, they had done uh, remarkable work, uh, but their paintings are relatively small. I mean, you, you can um, extend your arms and you know they're the wingspan of uh, someone with fairly large arms for the most part. And so the figures aren't life-size, they're smallish. Um, what you saw with The Last Supper was something that had this sort of nuance of detail um, and incredibly lifelike detail that you would get in an altarpiece, but it was blown up to you know, five times the size of an altarpiece. The painting was, as I say, um, 30 feet across. So it's a, a very substantial painting with, as I say, life-size figures in it. And so that was one of the big appeals uh, of the painting. But the other, and what we have lost, is uh, the the color of it, because uh, that obviously is uh, the one of the great losses we have is passages of color have been lost. But because of the fact that he was painting in this experimental technique, which involved using a mixture of egg tempera, in other words, egg yolk, he mixed his pigments with a combination of egg yolk and oil, a special oil that he prepared. Um, uh, uh, he was uh, able to use much brighter colors that he could apply much more carefully than someone who was painting in fresco. Uh, because in fresco, you had to use watercolor and you had to paint very quickly. And you could only use colors that could have um, the same uh, sort of uh, or that wouldn't be corroded uh, by the um, action of the lime in the plaster. And so you were limited in your palette if you did a fresco. People obviously 10 years after, 15 years after Michelangelo would do his work in the Sistine Chapel to great effect. Um, but no one previous to Leonardo had ever painted on a surface uh, with that sort of coloristic intensity, that, um, you know, that great, uh, a chromatic vivacity uh, that Leonardo had. So those are just technical things I'm talking about, the sort of color and then maybe the, uh, the, the, the nuances of, uh, of the way he's painting. But ultimately, I think what impressed people and what should still impress us today about it, even though we've lost so much of it, um, is the sort of orchestration of motion. Um, you just have to look back at... Uh, Last Suppers or any paintings done pre-1497-98 uh, when it was unveiled. Now look at those paintings and then compare, so by great painters such as Domenico Ghirlandaio or Andrea del Castaño. Um, and you realize that Leonardo has changed, um, he's affected a kind of step change in painting. Uh, the, what you get are individual expressions and gestures. Leonardo said that when you're painting someone, 
uh, you should uh, you you should show the motions of their mind. You should show their inner life. The inner life should come out through their facial expression and through the gestures that you put their their body and their hands into. And no one else had approached the the sort of um, expressive gesture that Leonardo has in the Last Supper, uh, where we have this reaction to a kind of double gesture that Christ is making, where he's both announcing the or instituting the Eucharist um, and announcing the traitor, that there is a traitor uh, among us. And so what he's doing is illustrating a passage dramatically, um, much more um, uh, much more dramatically than anyone had attempted to do uh, with previous scenes. Uh, because one, one of the most interesting things I discovered as I was writing the book is his account books in which he says that um, he uh, uh, has bought a Bible um, in November of 1494. And so he purchased it at exactly the time he was working on a Last Supper. And I think there's no doubt that what he was doing was going back to the four gospels and reading the accounts of what happened at the Last Supper. And I think he was electrified by what is after all uh, an extraordinarily exciting story of a charismatic political religious leader gathering in an occupied city with 12 uh, uh, of his companions, uh, this band of brothers on whom he has conferred special powers to heal the sick and raise the dead. Uh, and in their midst, there's a traitor uh, waiting to betray them. In fact, he's already betrayed them. Um, and the authorities, the en their enemies are waiting to strike. And I think Leonardo was amazed by these passages and decided that this is the sort of uh, uh, drama uh, that I'm going to affect in this, because it truly is a drama uh, that he's creating. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, fair enough. <laughs> like, I think, I think that answers uh, what I was asking that that's him. Um, one, let's shift gears a little bit to uh, Michelangelo. Um, talk about Michelangelo and the Pope's ceiling. Um, how, how did you, talking about the Sistine Chapel, for a book about, um, to call the Sistine Chapel just uh, uh, the the ceiling of it, it's it's not just a painting. It's it's a whole series of paintings. It, it's um, how did you approach writing about uh, such a, a massive series of paintings? This this huge multi year undertaking. Um, just as a writer, organizationally. How did you how did you try to condense this subject in a way that people could understand? Sure, it's uh, I think the, I, I took the approach um, in Michelangelo and the Pope ceiling that I take in uh, virtually all of my books, which is to tell it chronologically. And once again, what I wanted to do, as with my book on the Last Supper, I wanted to reverse engineer the painting and go back to the moment. Um, in 1508, uh, in the case of the Sistine Chapel, and in fact, in 1506, when um, Michelangelo first gets the commission to do it, um, and to look at his personal circumstances at that particular time. Because once again, as with the Last, uh, Last Supper, this is a curious, um, a curious sort of 
commission to give to someone who after all regards himself as a sculptor, not a painter. To ask a sculptor to paint in fresco, which he really is unable to do, to paint 12,000 square feet in this very important building in the heart of Christendom um, is it, uh, a very odd thing to do. So what, what I wanted to do was to take us up onto the scaffold uh, with Michelangelo as he, you know, no doubt with trembling hand, uh, begins laying his first licks of paint um, and then just taking us across the wall and taking us across, or sorry, taking us across the vault um, and then taking us across the uh, the years as well from uh, 1508 when he begins painting to 1512 uh, when he completes it. And one of the things I wanted to do was look at the way in which some of the imagery on the ceiling seems to reflect, uh, whether consciously or subconsciously, what was happening in Michelangelo's life at that time. I mean, I'll just give um, maybe two quick examples. Um, he uh, has a series of figures around the windows called the Ancestors of Christ, because he paints uh, the Christ's family tree uh, <laughs> onto, onto the, um, uh, the walls of the, the chapel. Um, and so, uh, he uh, uh, at the, and and these do not look like happy families. I mean, they they look exhausted and they look um, irritated with each other. Uh, and uh, it was just an interesting coincidence that at this particular time in 1508 to 12, uh, Michelangelo was having all sorts of problems with his own father uh, and with his brothers. Uh, and his father was embezzling money, and his brothers were wanting to come from Florence to Rome and have Michelangelo find jobs for them and things like that. And Michelangelo was also very, I think we could say, you know, if we can make a diagnosis uh, 500 years after the fact, we could say that he probably was clinically depressed at various points as he was working on it. Uh, because as uh, he said, he, it was not his art. He was not a painter. He was a sculptor. He didn't enjoy doing it. He didn't get on with Julius II, the Pope who commissioned it, who was a, an extremely difficult character. Um, and so uh, he, uh, I like the figure of Jeremiah that he has painted um, uh, what, as one of the prophets that he's put on the vault of the chapel. Uh, Jeremiah is this very lugubrious figure, as you would expect from the book of Jeremiah and his lament, Jeremiah's laments in it. Uh, but it seems to me that that is a self-portrait of uh, Michelangelo, that he sees himself as Jeremiah and he's sort of representing his own unhappiness uh, in the figure of this Old Testament prophet. And there are various other things as we go around the, uh, the walls and across the, the vault uh, in which he seems to have uh, put in uh, little things about how he was feeling at that particular time, making it quite an intimate uh, and in some ways a personal statement as well as a statement about the history of Christianity. Well, one of the things that was also interesting about it was the fact that, as you discuss in the book, people at the time didn't necessarily really get it. Like the, the famous uh, image of God touching Adam's finger People, there were people at the time who didn't, who saw the, the image of God and didn't even recognize that, oh, this is what's <laughs> happening here. What was the reaction like at the time? Well, one of the really frustrating things uh, when we look back from the point of view of today to 
uh, say we, when we look back 500 years, uh, let's say the documentary record just is not uh, complete enough and not deep enough to give us the everyday reaction of the man in the street or the woman in the street about uh, what people thought of this. And so the comments are very thin on the ground. We know, of course, that people were impressed by it um, because the reputation of Michelangelo after the Sistine Chapel or after the David and the Pietà as well, his two sculptures, sculptures that came before that, or Leonardo's work on the Last Supper, we know that these things were immediately and immensely appreciated, but we don't have uh, written documents from everyday people, uh, people keeping journals who, say, who tell us, uh, I went and I finally got into the Sistine Chapel and this is what I thought. We, we simply don't have those um, interesting records. And often when there is a record, it's like the one that you mentioned, uh, which is from Giorgio Vasari, who um, was a painter, friend of Michelangelo, designed his tomb in Florence, uh, and uh, yes, talks about the uh, old man flying overhead and doesn't recognize him as God the Father. Uh, one of the interesting things, though, is that, I mean, for us, that's the iconic image. That is the image of the painting. In fact, it's I, I don't think you can show that to anyone and they would not recognize uh, that that was Michelangelo, that that was the Sistine Chapel. Um, and that's the, the quite literally the center of the painting. Uh, but in uh, the few comments we do have from his time, what people were impressed by, it appears the most was not that one, uh, which after all, isn't a great technical feat of painting. It's in many ways an imaginative leap that he takes. And uh, in my book, I describe the sort of precursors of that because God the Father was often shown um, walking over to Adam and <laughs> extending a hand and pulling him to his feet. And so I think Michelangelo had this much better idea of having God the Father flying and, um, and having the magical touch conjuring life uh, into him. Um, but um, what most impressed people in, say, 1512 and the years after that was the figure that you would have seen, probably the first one you saw as you enter the chapel. And I um, encourage people to Google this image. It's the prophet Jonah, um, who is at the far end of the chapel, uh, the way you used to come in. These days we come into the Sistine Chapel via the altar wall. And so we lose the effect that people would have had in the 16th century when they entered opposite the altar wall. And they would have come in and the first thing they would have seen was the prophet Jonah on the far wall from them. And Jonah is leaning back, looking up at the vault. Um, and so in many ways, he leads us into it. He catches our eye and then we follow his gaze up into the vault. Um, but the uh, what's even more amazing, and I think what people were struck by was the fact that if you are able to stand under the prophet Jonah, you can see that Michelangelo has done a kind of trompe l'oeil or a trick of the eye in which he takes, uh, it, when we look at the figure of Jonah, it seems that his feet are towards us and his head is away from us because of the fact that he is leaning backwards or it appears he's leaning backwards. But as you go closer to him and as you stand under him around where the altar would have been, you see that it's actually the opposite case and his head 
is um, actually ahead of his feet. And so it was this great optical illusion that Michelangelo created. And no one had ever done anything like that before. This was unique. People in the century or two that followed uh, would take this to new heights and do even more remarkable things with it in Baroque painting. But no one in 1512 had done anything like that. Um, and I think that's, we don't celebrate the prophet Jonah enough today to um, make us uh, uh, really recognize how far Michelangelo came in four years. The Sistine Chapel was his school of painting. If in October 1508, he almost knew almost nothing about painting um, in fresco because he hadn't worked in it since the 1480s and then only very briefly as an adolescent um, by October of 1512, four years later, he was the master of it. He was the undisputed heavyweight champion of fresco painting. And what about uh, Brunelleschi's dome, where we're kind of seeing a theme here. We talked about Michelangelo not really seeing himself as a painter, da Vinci also not really wanting to be seen as a painter, and Brunelleschi was not, he was not an architect, right? How did this guy get selected to build this dome? Well, the I mean, in some ways, you could say no one was an architect at that time because the uh, the profession didn't really exist in the 1300s and 1400s. Uh, what happened? I mean, it's incorrect to say that Brunelleschi was the architect of the uh, the dome or that uh, that he designed it because he didn't design it. It had been designed in 1367 by a group of artists and master masons uh, who dreamt up uh, this magnificent dome. And what Brunelleschi inherited then, they, they dreamt it up without really knowing if it could ever be built. And I think undoubtedly in the 1360s and 70s, it could not have been built and it would have failed. Uh, but the people of Florence in the 1360s voted for it because the Florentines, who were always experimenting with democracy, uh, would take votes. Uh, the, po the population would turn out and vote on a particular plan, the way we might vote for a politician uh, today or vote for a politician among the various candidates. And that's what happened in Florence in 1367. And they held three referenda, um, and the people continually voted for the most adventurous and the most spectacular of these plans. Uh, which then um, it, the cathedral was under construction at that time. And it was going to obviously be a couple more decades before they got to the point where they were going to be um, having to face the challenge of building the dome. And that's the point at which then in the 1410s, so many years later, um, Brunelleschi steps onto the stage of history. Um, and he has inherited this plan. I'm sure he's studied it. Um, and, and done his own sort of feasibility studies on it and decides that it can be built and he knows how to build it. So he was really, if we want to bring him forward into present day and attribute a profession to him, he's the engineer, he's the structural engineer who works with the architectural plan and tells, um, you know, he's the equivalent of the, um, the engineer, the, the Ove Arup, who says, uh, yes, this is the way, yes, you want to build the Sydney Opera House or you want to build um, 
uh, you know, a Frank Gehry building or a Santiago Calatrava building or something like something like that. This is how it can be done structurally. Uh, we'll do the number crunching for you. Uh, we'll study the materials for you and figure out if it can be done. So that was really his achievement. Um, and it's undoubtedly a remarkable one because he took this dream that the Florentine people had in the 1300s of the world's largest dome, a dome that would rise heavenward with no visible means of support, and he made it a reality. Um, and so that was um, a, a truly astonishing feat uh, on his part, which obviously uh, was widely celebrated and gave him sort of messianic dimensions or gave him a, a messianic reputation virtually within his own lifetime. And, and he also, when you talk about the engineering feats, I mean, just the safety measures alone that he employed for the people working on the project. I think you, you mentioned the book that it's something like only one person died during the making of it, which is unfortunate, but for that time is pretty remarkable. How, how did he keep people, uh, how did he make this such a, a safe production? Yes, I mean, he had a, an absolutely astonishing safety record. And, and thanks for picking out that statistic, though, a statistic of one person, because of all of the statistics that there are about the dome, what it weighs, how many million bricks, four million bricks, apparently, of all of these things, um, it, what is, uh, I think, the most remarkable is the fact that only one person died in the 16 years between 1420 and 1436. Um, and there is the suggestion that he was drunk and that's why he fell. Uh, the, uh, uh, to put the, into context the sort of death toll there was on building sites in the Middle Ages, just before Brunelleschi took over, he became capomaestro and began construction of the dome in August of 1420. We've just in uh, last year celebrated um, as best as much as was possible during the pandemic, uh, the 600th anniversary of Brunelleschi beginning work on it. Um, it um, he started work August uh, 1420, and in July 1420, the month before he started work, two people died in falls from it. Um, so, uh, and then he took over, and over the next 16 years, there was one death, which, uh, as I say, is remarkable. And the way he did it was in some ways twofold. Uh, one, he watered down the wine that the uh, men had uh, with their lunch. He served them lunch on the walls. Um, ultimately, he didn't want them losing time descending uh, through, if you've climbed, you know, it's a long walk up uh, to the, even to the base of the dome. Uh, and so he didn't want them descending for their lunch hour. And so they were given food and also wine um, at the top um, but uh, for those who were working in positions of jeopardy uh, on some of the cranes, for example, uh, he uh, had their wine uh, fortified with uh, a third part water. Um, so uh, they didn't get drunk um, and didn't get tipsy and, and take a tumble or something like that. The other thing that he did, and this seems remarkable to us, uh, or at least remarkable to me um, in the 21st century, is that he used... Um, uh, uh, leather harnesses to uh, tether uh, the workmen in the dangerous spots to uh, uh, a fixed point. And this undoubtedly saved, uh, you know, 
potentially dozens of lives. The men did not fall as they were working. Um, and you would have thought this was a much more widespread practice, but um, we've, you know, this, even throughout the 20th century, this was not a common practice. And I'm sure we've all seen those remarkable photos of people working high steel in New York City in the 1920s, eating their lunch on these, these steel beams uh, swinging out over the abyss in New York City. Um, also, uh, I gave a talk on Brunelleschi in St. Louis a number of years ago. And um, when I was talking about these safety harnesses, people uh, told me that uh, when the arch was built uh, over uh, the river, over the Mississippi, uh, that uh, the men doing that did not wear harnesses. Um, and I'm not sure what the death toll there was, uh, but obviously uh, this was not uh, a sort of health and safety issue until perhaps later in the 20th century. And in wrapping up here, I wanted to ask you, because the fact that uh, Brunelleschi, this project, this, this kind of project had not been done before, but he went on and, and took it on and in doing so really changed, uh, revolutionized architecture. Uh, similarly, you know, Michelangelo did not consider himself a painter. Leonardo da Vinci was, you know, the term Renaissance man comes out of this period for a reason. And it feels as though there's um, a sense of possibility and, and risk-taking during that time that's missing. Uh, is that part of why you think we, we find this era so attractive? Yes, absolutely. I think you put your finger on something really essential about the period that they believed that um, the Florentines especially uh, believed that they were a kind of a special chosen people and they were therefore willing to take these risks. They were willing to allow Brunelleschi to begin working on the dome, albeit with certain safeguards where they would um, look at the progress he was making and then decide if they're going to allow him to continue building. Um, and, and so they would have meetings and things like that. But they took that initial leap of faith. And I think that's what we get happening in the 1400s, that they believe that human beings are capable of vast, uh, uh, vast achievement in the way that perhaps in the previous few centuries, they didn't believe that uh, humankind could rise to such great heights. And I think Brunelleschi is, marks the beginning point of that because what he did was effectively defeated the ancient Romans at their own game, which was large scale vaulting. He built a dome that was larger and much higher than anything the ancient Romans had done. Um, and if we think of what it was like to live in Italy in the 1200s, 1300s, early 1400s, they were living quite literally in the shadow of uh, this pagan architecture. That they, looked, they were living among what seemed to be a race of giants who had disappeared from the face of the earth. And they were these pygmies who had, in, had inherited this great legacy and couldn't do anything with it. Uh, but with Brunelleschi, they were able to step out of that shadow um, and begin to believe in themselves. And once they began to do that, it became, you know, their um, their cries of greatness became, or cries of their own greatness became sort of self-fulfilling prophecies. And they went on to do such great things that by the end of the century, we have 
uh, probably the greatest Florentine philosopher of the period, because the Florentines were also great writers and philosophers, from Dante to uh, the guy I'm going to talk about, Marsilio Ficino, the great philosopher of the second half of the 1400s in Florence. Ficino talks about the way in which uh, humans are what he calls a kind of god. They have godlike powers. And when he wants to offer proof for the godlike powers of humanity, he simply points at what's been done in Florence, all of the greatness that has been achieved there. And his friend and colleague, Pico della Mirandola, who is from Mirandola, not from Florence, but who did live in Florence uh, towards the end of his short life, Pico wrote that, uh, you know, humans can be whatever they want to be. And so there's this sort of call to grandeur uh, that, that we can achieve all of these things. The sky's the limit, the possibilities are endless. And I think once you begin taking on board that message, things do become possible for you, even against tremendous odds, the sort of odds that Brunelleschi faced, that Leonardo faced on the Last Supper, or that Michelangelo did when he was painting the vault of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, Ross, I think that's a good note to end it on. Um, is there anywhere that people can follow you uh, or find your books at? Do you have a website that you, you could let people know about? Absolutely. I've got a site, uh, rosskingbooks.com. Um, and on my site, you'll see links to the books. Uh, you'll also find a link to my YouTube channel, uh, which is uh, in which I discuss many of these issues of um, of art and ideas in uh, 15th century Florence, especially. Um, it's called Renaissance Discoveries. You can find it on uh, YouTube uh, by putting my name with Renaissance Discoveries, or as I say, on my website. And I've got a new book out, as you'll notice on uh, my website, which is called The Bookseller of Florence, which has just appeared in April of 2021. Um, and so, uh, uh, which is a true story of uh, the, a remarkable manuscript dealer in Florence who spread word of the Renaissance, spread word of much of what we've been talking about when I talk about the greatness to which the Florentines and, and Italians are, in, are aspiring. He spread this far and wide over the course of five decades across uh, the 1400s, a man named Vespasiano da Bistici. Well, um, I'll definitely check it out. And uh, th that's something that all your books available on your uh, on your website or through Amazon, wherever books are sold, uh, I assume. Absolutely. There you go. Uh, Ross, thanks so much for your time and uh, have a great rest of your day. Sure. Thank you so much. Pleasure. All righty. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks a lot. Thank you to Ross King, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.